If you will, turn back in your Bibles to the book of Exodus. We will be looking at selected passages. For those of you who are privileged to be on this journey with us, we know um, vast sections of this Exodus account. We are still in the 10th encampment. There are 42 encampments. We are in 10. Israel will experience another 32 encampments and life will change for them significantly in a short while and we will look at that. But we are at a marquee aspect of the journey of Israel in its wilderness sojourn. A sojourn, by the way, which is parallel to ours as believers in this world. God has plainly told us that we are the Israel of God. He's plainly told us that those who believe in Jesus are Abraham's seed. He's also told us that this world is not our ultimate home, not this world planet, but this world system, because we will abide on this planet for all eternity when it ultimately goes through the real transition. I'm going to be talking to you today about things I've talked to you guys about for decades, and that is how the devil loves to parody the things of God. Our elder just plainly said that he's often struggling with all these folks that are going through transition. Well, the elect are going through transition too. The issue is which one is changing you, this world system or God? We're all going through changes. I don't care who you are, you are not immutable. You are mutable and either we are changing for God's glory or we are changing for the enemy. Am I making some sense? And what I want to do is help you understand a little bit more of what the narrative, God's story has to say to us. God's life story, love story in Jesus has to say to you and I. And because we profess to be believers in Christ, we want our life story to merge with God's life story. Do we not? And we want his love and his grace in Christ to filter our story so the world can see God through his people as we submit to his lordship. I told you last week that it was a remarkable thing that happened to Israel as well as leadership in chapter 33 when we had just come out of the previous chapters where our title was Arise, Move, and Go, and they saw God. Remember how we talked about how Moses could see God, the 70 could see God, Joshua could see God. And the children of Israel saw the glory of God, did they not, on the top of the mountain? And they knew God was present. And just a few chapters later, they said Moses is dead, which meant God was dead because Moses was God's mediator, was he not? How do you go from seeing the glory of God one day and the next day you're saying God doesn't exist? Something radical happened to that people, didn't it? For them to lose sight of the reality and then further move into a process of developing a false reality and calling it God. And I tell you, your Bible is prophetic. It speaks explicitly and clearly to the things that are going on in our day. We have laid out principles before for you, that which has been is. So when you're looking at what's happening now, you can see it more clearly in the past when God tells you where the principles are in that old historic account that is abiding now and manifesting itself in this present culture. And even that which is coming 
even that has already been said Solomon so that we can know the future when we know the present through the past. The role of the Holy Ghost is to take things that have occurred and show you realities now so that you are certain about the future. Am I making sense? This is what we call protology in theology. The end is known from the beginning with God. And what the end will be is a restoration of the beginning magnified to the infinite order. And so you and I are looking for a new, a fresh, a renewed heavens and earth wherein righteousness dwells. But we're not there yet. And on our way, we are in a battle of parodies, P-A-R-O-D-Y, where the enemy is constantly trying to hoodwink men and women into thinking that that which he produces is God. And men and women are constantly under a test as to whether or not you know what truth is versus error. This is where the church has been called to be an instrumental voice in the world, prophetically, to let the world know where the lie, L-I-E, really is. And then the church's role is to help men and women that want to come up out of that lie embrace the priestly, redemptive, reconciling work of Jesus Christ. And if any man be in Christ Jesus He is a new creature. That's the real battle here, because there is a dynamic going on in our world that we need to very clearly see. So our title today is Arise, Move, and Go. This is the imperative of God to his people, because we're on a journey. And the subtitle is very apropos, Show Me Thy Glory. Show Me Thy Glory. So the lens is going to narrow down to a conversation between God's man, Moses. And what you and I want to do is sit on that conversation because Moses is now having a conversation with God. And and the Holy Spirit is allowing us to ear hustle in on that conversation so we can learn some things. Up front, before you go to sleep on me, what I want to tell you so that you can at least have the paradigm is that there's going to be a radical contradistinction between the people of God and Moses. And God wants you to clearly see how the people of God will misrepresent their opportunity and what it will cause in their life and what that same event will do to Moses. See, trials will drive you to God. Temptations will drive you away from God. Trials will drive you to God if you're God's, but temptations will run you away from God if you're not his. Am I making some sense? And even sometimes when you're his, when you misappropriate a providential event in your life and you call it a temptation, you will let the enemy speak into your ear and drag you away from God. So you're getting ready to see a contrast between Moses and the people. And you and I want to be able to draw, take application. Lord, let me be Moses and not these people, because these people never once said. Show me your glory. So what's going on with my man Moses? I I, I really feel for Moses. I understand leadership well. Um, Most of our upline pastors and theologians and scholars have said, if you can help it, PJ, don't go into the pastorate. And what Moses is struggling with right now are some events that I want to call a matrix. 
Now, you've heard the term matrix a thousand times, and this lying culture has told you whenever you hear that word, it means you are a conspiracy theorist and they want to turn you away from clarity. But may I tell you quickly that basically the idea of a matrix is a framework that is a closed loop system. It's really a computer term, but it's a mathematical term. It's really a closed loop system where once you get inside that system or you are unwittingly placed in that system, you are going through the labyrinth of that system according to the design of that system. You are going to end up where that system wants you to end up, particularly if you are unwitting about it. Am I making some sense? In that regard, may I say this about the one true and living God, he has a matrix too. And God's matrix takes his people and put them inside a closed loop system. And he leads them according to his grace. And they follow him wherever he goes and their destiny is sure as well. The issue is simply what matrix are you in? What matrix are you in? And so right now what Moses is dealing with is being drawn into this matrix, he's struggling. Walking with God is not easy, child of God. Walking with God is not easy. He didn't tell you that it would be. And the major tandem qualities that Moses is going to be preoccupied with as he is appealing to God to show him his glory, the major tandem qualities about God, which are hard to manage psychologically for many people. The tandem qualities are these. God's mercy and God's justice. We don't do well with either one. Because we like to insert our thought into what God is up to, we often want God to be merciful when he's being just. And then we want God to be just when he's being merciful. And what he just told Moses under this appeal is, Moses, you're going to have to wake up, little brother. I'm God, not you. And I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And you need to close the chapter on that because I'm not changing. Am I making some sense? But we will struggle with that. If you look at your life at the micro level, you will struggle with God's providence in your life. You'll struggle with what God allows. You will struggle with what God permits. You will struggle with what God does. You and I will struggle because struggle is the way you and I grow. See, God doesn't need to grow anymore. You do. And what Moses is learning is that there's some things about God he did not know. And he said, Moses says, okay, God, can we have a conversation? Because you are doing things that I never anticipated you would do. This is a wake up call to Moses to get on God's side for the next 39 years because they're going to be in the wilderness for a long time in a minute. Now, Moses doesn't know this, and the people of Israel doesn't know this, but God knows this. And God intends for Moses to lead the people of God to the shores of the promised land. Now, you already know your Bible enough to know Moses is going to have a hard time leading these people for the next 39 years. Is that right? And it makes sense that once he has been gripped by an event that has occurred recently, that he would say, God, I need to know you. If you're going to use me to lead these people, i got to know what you are up to. That's a good way to respond when things are happening in your life that you don't know. Rather than getting mad at God and wanting to rearrange reality and to engage in the fabrication of a myth, it would be better to simply say, God, can I have a conversation with you? 
Now, I ain't got, I ain't got nothing else to do, God, so I'm going to hang out all day. I'm here all month. I'm here all year. I'm not moving until, God, you show me your glory. Moses is serious about this, and I love the way the narrative lays it out. This is something that you and I want to be able to flush out fully. Moses wants to know the nature and character of God, but you and I struggle not only with the glory of God, that is to say God doing what God wants to do, we struggle with the way that he does it. And we must admit there's a danger in our text that we need to be warned about, especially, especially when God is doing something we don't like or don't understand. That's what we're being warned about here. Point number one, I want to go into this a bit of a revisitation of what we did, dealt with last week, because I told you we could go deep in that. You guys remember what happened in chapter 32, verse one and two. Please look at it briefly. And when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down to the mount, the people gathered themselves together unto Aaron and said unto him, up, make us gods, which shall go before us. For as is Moses, the man which brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what is become of him. Do you guys understand what just happened? I shared with you last week what happened here. This was a major disruption in these people's assumption about how God should act. I'm going to break this down for you once again so you can get it. There's a, there's a set of presumptions going on here in verse 1. And there are some qualities that emerge out of that. According to our outline, subpoint A, the people cried, didn't they? They cried out. They came there and cried out and they actually spoke in the imperative because they told Aaron to arise up and move and go. And I told you last week that was an aversion of authority. Didn't I teach you that? That God is the one that tells us when to get up and go, when to sit still and wait. We don't tell God when to do it. We don't tell his leadership when to do it, but we're inclined to do that. I can tell you, ladies and gentlemen, it is so hard sometimes to wait on the Lord. At a certain point, if the presumption of our patience, and you need to mark that down, that is what Israel demonstrated, a presumption of their own patience. They presumed that they had a timeline that was appropriate to them in regards to what God is up to. How presumptuous we are when we say, okay, God, I'm going to give you seven days. I'm giving you seven days. If you don't, I'm taking the, I'm taking the, 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 uh, the hem by the hands. And we've been told about that, have we not? Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. You acknowledge God in all your ways and recognize that God's timing is not always your timing. And so what will often happen by the presumptuous Christian or religious person is when things don't happen according to their time, they'll take the bull by the horns. Is that what Israel did? And they, they usurped authority. I told you they turned it upside down, which is what's going on in our world today. Whereas God should be at the top, we put God underneath us and we've turned him into a horse that we ride and dictate a bull or a donkey and tell him what he must do. This is a man-centered theology that is part of the global transformation of the world in which I live. When they talk about God, if they talk about God, they're mocking him. And if they talk about him, they make him a limited God subject to their own whim and caprice. No such thing should occur in the life of the believer. Get over the fact that you think you know what God is up to when he hasn't told you. Sit still and know that I am God. 
That's what the people of God do. See, what's happening in these scenarios is simply that your faith is being tested. Right, boy, our faith is often tested in times of patience, isn't it? And so these people cried. There are five sub points here. I think five or six. Notice the people cried. Sub point B, Aaron lied. Sub point C, the people died. Sub point D, Moses tried. Sub point E, but his request was denied. Let's work that through. Let's work that through because that's the text here. This is why I feel sorry for Moses because he tried. He tried. These people cried and it was a cry of rebellion because they were engaging in a presumption of their patience. And that presumption of their patience led to, and remember I told you, they stated that Moses delayed. Y'all remember that? And I told you that that actually is an inherent statement that meant emotionally they were ashamed because of how long Moses was gone. See, we can get real angry, can't we? We can get mad. And often that's, that madness and anger is rooted in the fact that we haven't gotten our way. Right? I taught y'all that, right? Delay is a notion that there was a set time mark and they exceeded that time. Right? That's a perception problem on your part. Let's get this down. So there was a presumption of patience and then there was a perversion of perception. Why? Because they assumed and expressed assertively that Moses was dead. Was that the truth? That was a lie. See, this is a perception problem. Your perceptions and mine don't start with what's going on out here. It starts with what's going on in here. We see everything from our mind first. Am I making some sense? And so if your, your mind doesn't have a prism, a framework, a grounding, a, a premise for accurately perceiving what it sees, you will actually imagine a lie, particularly if you're driven by emotions and not intellect. I told you, think first, then feel. If you're driven by your feelings, you're going to always be deluded. Right, because your feelings are susceptible to your base nature, which is always instinctual. It's called self-preservation, right? Your limbic system kicks in and you're anxious or you're afraid or you're fearful or you're hungry. We know the rules, don't we? We know how that works. And the enemy loves to put you in that fight, flight, fright mode. Because at that point, you're operating emotionally and you're operating ignorantly. The people of God should be grounded and true so we can manage how we feel. So you feel like Moses is delayed, huh? Okay, what are you going to do with your feelings? Subject them to the promises of God. You're not going to let your feelings rule if you're a child of God. Feelings come and feelings go. Feelings are so fleeting. Nothing but the word of God is really worth believing. See, a grounded man or woman will let the emotions come because they know they come to go, don't they? If you just sit, you ladies know that. It's just some of y'all fan, and y'all know what I mean, right? You know, you just let them come, and then they go, and then we good, right? Let him come. Just, this is come to go. Don't worry, this is a short run here. And I'm just using that as an analogy for all of us. Men are that way too. We can want something to happen right away. Now, generally, when you're acting like that, God will quickly show you he's God by paying you no attention at all. Because he's going to change your nature. 
He's going to get you to agree with him. If he paid for you by the blood of his son, you're going to end up agreeing with God. You're going to end up going, I'm with him. All right. So we've got the people crying and these, these qualities emerging, which I think are so prescient today. Presumption of patience, perversion of perspective, then a corruption, a corruption of their imagination. Their foolish hearts were darkened, as Paul said in Romans chapter 1, having inverted the authority of the leadership, which the leadership should not have let them do. Because what's going on all over the world where everything is getting burned down and towed down and ripped down and towed up and ripped up and burned down and towed up is the flipping of things upside down just as Marx said would occur when you put unqualified leadership in a position and then you scare them to death with mobs. Because these were mobs who came after Aaron. They were mobs. I told you the grammar is they came against Aaron. They came as a mob ready to shred Aaron to pieces. This is what he's going to tell Moses we're going to get there in a moment. And so they did exactly what the people said. The people cried. And then Moses said over in verse, uh, Aaron said in verse two, and Aaron said unto them, break off the golden earrings which are in your ears, the ears of your wives, sons, your daughters, and bring them to me. So what is Moses doing? I mean, Aaron, he's capitulating to their will. Now, their will is contrary to God's will, is it not? But you see how leadership is just going to do what they say? This here is called thuggish mobbishness. This is what's going on today. These are shakedowns going on in your world where leaders of companies are being shaken down from the ground up by these movements. They're shakedowns and it's destroying companies and it's destroying communities inside by this agenda that's operating by these pseudo-woke people. You do know that, right? This is a shakedown. You, you, you have a, a perfectly reasonable company like Chick-fil-A, supposedly Christian, and you're trying to serve the people and you are honoring God by not worshiping, not working on Sunday. And then here they come, the mob, and turn your system upside down and get the owner of the company to lick the boots of one of the mob woke people and engage in reverse racism. Wake up the people's eyes, oh God. And now that company is going down because a shakedown has occurred. This is happening in the football uh, sports arena, it's happening in the banking, it's happening across all your institutions because I already have warned you what's going on in our world, have I not? This is a global agenda to destroy Western culture, which is the same as destroying a biblical worldview. See, this is either about knowing God or not knowing God. You're not going to withstand this storm if you don't know God. And I'm talking about in the true religious folk not going to make it. Only real believers are going to make it because their eyes will remain open and God will give them grace to stand on his side. Whosoever is on the Lord's side, let him come over here. This is a serious game we're playing today because transformation is taking place at the bottom with your kids. How arrogant can they be to take your kids? But they are making the assumption that you don't love them. And in many cases, people don't. And this is how authorities can come in and take the very kids you you suffered and struggled to have because you didn't understand it's your job to raise them in the fear and the nurture of the Lord. So here comes the mob crying, and now Aaron is about to engage in something absolutely remarkable. And you guys know what he did over in verse 3, and the people broke off the golden earrings which were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. 
and he received them at their hand. I want you to mark what happens here because I want you to see how when accountability comes to weak, wimpy leadership, how weak, weak, wimpy leadership engage in postmodern fabrication of of fantasy. I want you to see that in your text. Now, Aaron knows exactly what he's doing. Aaron knows exactly what he was doing. He was in Egypt right along with the rest of his brethren for 430 years. Am I making sense? He watched the Egyptians make gods every day. They knew how to make little gods. They knew the arduous task. They knew the kind of trees you cut down, you carve out, you construct. They knew the intense energy employed in metallurgy of taking gold and silver and pounding it to make it pliable to cover over the idol that you made. Am I making some sense? Now listen to what the text says, verse 4, and he received of them their hands and fashioned it with a graving tool. So what is he doing? Laboring very hard, is he not? And after they had made it a golden calf, and they said, these be thy gods, O Israel, which brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Now look at verse 4, the latter part. Aaron made the thing in their presence, and they turned around and said, these are your gods. Do y'all see that? You can laugh, but you shouldn't, because this is what your Bible meant by, and God shall send them a strong delusion that they should believe a lie, because they did not have a love for the truth, that they might be saved. Are y'all hearing me? This is why Romans chapter 121 says, and they changed the truth of the incorruptible, glorious, almighty, infinite God, immutable, unchangeable, into an image made like four-footed beasts, creeping things, and birds of the air, and mankind. There it is. We're looking at it, isn't it, aren't we? This here is a prefiguring of Romans 1, but it's also a prefiguring of Revelation chapter 13, where the second beast will make an image of the beast and then tell everybody else you've got to engage in image-making. That's where you and I are today. Worldwide assault on humanity, forcing them into a compliance system of transforming human beings into an image of the beast. This is all because Aaron was willing to capitulate to their cry and Aaron engaged in a lie, did he not? Now notice how the language speaks. This is the part I want to get to. Notice what it says over in verse 22 of chapter 32, because Moses finally comes down. I'm not going back into that. God said, boy, you better get on down there because your boy, he didn't just lost his mind. That's my interpretation. Now watch this. Verse 22, uh, verse 21, I'll start there. And Moses said unto Aaron, what did this people unto thee? Now, do you see that? Right. So I would put that out and put a parenthesis on that and tell you that inherent in that little proposition is a whole system of ideology that incrementally enters into the society of leadership so that it strips them of a sound mind and brings them into subservitude to ideological constructs that are designed to deny God his glory and turn men and women into slaves. In other words, it is an idolatrous ideology that Moses capitulated to, did he not? And everything that does not comport with the truth of God is an idol. Everything that you and I are dealing with in this world that does not comport to the truth is an idol. 
And today the idols are so visible that you can't miss them unless you want to. You are seeing idols everywhere. You are seeing idols everywhere. There are so many idols everywhere. An idol is a distortion of the truth. An idol is a misrepresentation of of reality in a visible form. An idol at the highest level of God's intentionality is what we are doing with human beings created in the Imago Dei and distorting them like we're doing everywhere. You're seeing it everywhere. Am I making some sense? Stay with me. I want to say one more thing as we go back. If you are a frog and you are sitting in the proverbial boiling pot and the water is getting warm to the boil as I see it doing and you haven't jumped out yet, you're probably trapped. If you are a frog and you are sitting comfortably in the boiling water of this worldwide transformation, which is so obvious, Stevie Wonder can see it. (laughs) Ask your great-grandmama. That's not Jesus. Ask your great-grandmama what this world looks like to her today compared to what it looked like 60, 70 years ago. They would see the changes. But my generation is like a bunch of frogs in the boiling water and it incrementally has so occurred that you can't see it. And even if you can, you don't care. And that's the frog that loses its power to get out of that hot water. You're stuck in the matrix because you don't care. Now, my prayer is that Jesus would grab your lazy tail and pull you out anyway and set you on a solid rock as we're going to see in a moment to help you overcome the damnation that you have contributed to your own demise. Listen to what the text says. Aaron said, what do these people do to you that you have brought so great a sin upon us? Moses got it right, didn't he? Because see, to whom much is given, much is required. Leadership facilitated the mob. And now we have had a major, major manifestation of central collective idolatry take place, didn't we? And Moses is now accountability. This is called accountability. So here, I want you to get this. For those of you who are active on the ground, when they talk to you, we're here, we're queer, and we're coming for your children. When you hear that, guess what they're saying? We don't believe that there is a God. We don't believe that there is a God that will punish us for our rebellion. The Bible tells me when judgment is executed slowly, It is wholly set in the hearts of sons of men to do evil. In other words, when God holds back his judgment, it's for him to show us where we are. So when you're not right with God, he's going to let you fall prey to that delusion. And God will let the delusion run often longer than it's comfortable for many of us. Because what God is calling on us to do, I, I have to tell you, God did not call you to be passive. I don't care who you are. You can sit and wait and be passive all you want and you'll go right into Babylonian captivity. God has several mechanisms by which he calls his people to engage. That's why he sent Moses down the hill. He sent Moses down the hill so he wouldn't kill everybody because he's going to kill some people. We're about to get into that. So he said, now, Moses, you represent God's elect. You are a mediator. You got to go down there and tell them what I said so they can escape the judgment. Am I making some sense? And that's your job and mine. That's your job and mine. 
That's your job and mine. You don't wait for somebody else to tell them. You find your calling and you ask God to grace you so that in the middle of that situation, when you look around and there's nobody else that knows the true and the living God, you say, God, grace me to open my mouth to give you glory in that situation. Verse 22. Now listen to this ridiculous response that corresponds with the foolishness that's going on today. And Aaron said, let not the anger of my Lord wax hot. See how Aaron knew that Moses had a right to be angry with him? Because God told Moses to tell Aaron to stay in charge while Moses is up in the mount. And he said, now you know these people, man, these people crazy. Man, you Moses, don't you know these people crazy? Notwithstanding, when you are the leader, your job is to reign in crazy. We're all born crazy. 5150, wide open apart from the grace of God. Am I telling the truth? We, we, the inmates in the prison will flip that thing in five minutes without structure and without government. Am I making some sense? This is why you got to have laws. Ignorant Christians that talk about lawlessness, that is the name of Satan. He is the son of perdition. He is the spirit of lawlessness. You need law to whip you know, presumptuous people into shape and to drive them to Jesus. When a country is without law, it's on its way to hell. And so Moses is doing his job and Aaron is showing us how weak he is. Remind me of some politicians. Man, you see how these people is, man. We just got to give these people what they want. No, you don't. You give them what they need, not what they want. You give them what they need. Verse 23, here it is, verse 23. For they said unto me, now, now be very careful here. There is so many lessons here, I, please. They said unto me, make us gods. Inherent in that is a threat, isn't it? They were threatening Moses, that's my point to you. They didn't come sitting there with a cup of tea and, and lemonade and say, Moses, can we negotiate? I mean, Aaron, can we negotiate a change here? Because we don't know, no, they were threatening him. We will change your ESG scores. We will tear down your stock in your company. If you don't comply with our social justice paradigm, we will crush your business. We will put you on Facebook and Twitter. Well, you can't do it on Twitter right now, but you can do it on other places. These are hijackings, and they've been going on since the 60s. I had to think about it for a moment, and it only took me about a second and a half. The Rainbow Coalition with Jesse Jackson. It only took a second and a half. Because where we are now is where they were then, and we knew it. They were hiding undercover, ready to hijack the civil rights movement. And so when people are talking about we're in another civil rights movement, you are deluded. Martin Luther King Jr.'s civil rights movement is nothing like this folly today. Nothing like it. There, there are no corresponding equivalents today. There are no corresponding equivalents today. Our issue today is not racism. It is not. That's a red herring for those of you who understand logic. That's a red herring. That's an excuse for a fight to tear things down, and you don't know that they're tearing down that which is yours as well. That's exactly right. How on earth can you be comfortable with mobs running into the city and neighborhoods you live in to destroy the quality of your own area, your own home, and you call that a good thing? You have bought into the delusion too. Am I making some sense? This is, and when the churches are silent, they are complicit. 
This is where my generation is today. For they said, make us gods which shall go for us. Uh, he said to Moses, the man that brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what has become of him. That was a fallacy. God already told them what's going on. Moses is in the best place he could ever be, having fellowship with God. Don't you want your mama having fellowship with God? Don't you want your daddy having fellowship with God? Don't you want your children having fellowship with God? Don't you want your spouse? Don't you want your siblings? Don't you want people in your life to have fellowship with God? Because if they really know him, they're going to do you good when they're better with God, as we shall see. And you don't want to actually cut that short. Let them hang out with God as long as they need to, because when they come back, they're going to be better people for it. Look at the next verse. Here it is. I thought this was remarkably prescient. And I said unto him, whosoever has any gold, let them break it off. So they gave it to me and did not cast it into the fire. And out came this God. A whole lot of editing of the data, right? A whole lot of editing of the data. Now, because this is the word of God, the humor can only run for a moment. It's called a comic relief. It's all right, but you don't stay there long because I can tell you right now, America is drunk on humor. And our humor is ungodly humor. So I, I was talking to our saints about this presentation we've watched for years by Yuri Bismanov, and it's called Ideological Subversion. And when he's training Americans in 1984, he's training Americans to see how the Marxist system infiltrates our culture and tears us down. They're laughing through the whole presentation. And I'm saying, see, that's the problem with America. We just want to laugh. We're laughing our tails all the way to hell. There are some things you don't laugh about. Everything is not a joke. Am I making some sense? Everything's not a joke, and you get to test yourself whether or not you are weak in character if you can laugh at evil. I said unto them, you know, take it off and give it to me. I cast it in the fire, and there came out this calf. Now, I want you to understand what God is doing. His truth is profound, is deep. His wisdom is infinite. It carries across all schemes and applications and machinations. This here expression is a postmodern fabrication of reality. It is a sharp version of a lie, is it not? Underneath this lie is what I shared with you last week. This is a neo-gnostic sort of uh, alchemy methodology of changing culture incrementally by throwing things in the hopper of human process and constantly changing things. You and I have been in the constant change dynamic since the fall of mankind. Am I making some sense? And especially over the last 30, 40 years, incrementalism is the way politics works. This is why I tell you to watch out for both sides because they're lying on both sides. Not everybody on both sides, but a lot on both sides. And that pump car is nothing but a neo-gnostic alchemy mechanism for change to change men and women from the imago day to an image made like under corruptible things look at how they're thinking that what came out of the fire is a god is that not a delusion but i need to show you that it's important for you to know behind this magic of this God coming out for them of which they went aha these are our gods that's called deception there was a lot of energy put into that process. Isaiah chapter 44, starting at verse 17. I'm going to show you what happened. Now, Isaiah the prophet lays this out. I want you to get this because a lot of people are so super lazy, they're not willing to study even when you put the data in their hands. Am I making some sense? Yeah. Say, hey, watch this, read this, 
Study this and you'll see it for what it is. People are too lazy to understand that the mechanisms and the processes are acute and they are rigorous and they are constant until it's time to implement them. And when they implement them, they are radical in their nature. This is why you can't actually answer to why a policy can be implemented and then the change is so absolutely massive and pervasive. Well, it's because the seeds were already rooted before the policy was implemented. Are y'all hearing me? We're talking about idolatry here. Start at verse 16. This is the man that makes an idol. He takes a piece of wood. Start, start with me at verse 14. I want to walk through this. He takes a piece of wood and he hews down a cedar. Now, why a cedar? Because it's very good wood for making idols. Cedars of Lebanon are very fine woods that you can carve and shape and they have durability. Are you, am I making some sense? He cuts down cedar. He takes the cypress and the oak which he strengthens for himself among the trees of the forest. He plants an ash. In other words, once he cuts the tree down, he takes the other part of it to start other trees. He plants an ash and the rain that nourishes it. So I want you to get the irony. This is a story of irony. He's taking God's creation, cutting it down so he can reform it into something else. Okay, look at the next verse. I want to walk through this. Here it is. Then shall it be for a man to do what? Burn. Because that's what you do with trees. For he will take thereof and he'll do what? Warm himself. Don't we cut trees down? Particularly in the day when it was nothing but wood. Right. He warms himself. Yea, he kindles it. Yea, he even fixes his dinner on it. Now, God has given him the tree to do that. You know, make your house. Right. Make your boats. Trees are wonderful metaphors of the utilitarian nature of God's goodness in our life. But then notice what it says. And he bakes with it. He cooks his meal on it. He makes a God out of it and worships it. Do you see it? He makes it a graven image and then he falls down thereunto. Now, ladies and gentlemen, this is what we call the noetic effect of sin. I've been teaching this forever. This is when you are stupid enough to think that the thing that you created is worthy of your bowing down and worshiping it. Do you see it? Look at the next verse. Let's keep walking. I got to get to a couple more verses. He burns part of it in the fire. With part of it, he eats flesh. This is called repeating the narrative. This is a narrative. He's repeating it to help you understand how stupid he is. He burns part of it in the fire. He uses it to, to make food. He, 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 roast, uh, he roasted the roast and he's what? Thank you, Lord. I'm, I'm full. I'm warm. And he says, aha, I'm warm. I've seen the fire. He's sitting there cold at night. He's warming himself in the fire. You see that? All of the appropriate, practical, utilitarian purposes of wood. Notice what it goes on to say. And the residue thereof, what does he do with it? Makes a God. Even his graven image. He falls down unto it and worships it and he prays unto it. What does he say? Deliver me for you're my God. This is where our world is today. This is where my world is today. Buying into man-centered ideologies that come from godless individuals who have sown into our culture for hundreds of years antichrist systems. Okay, and people don't pick up on it because they have levels of practicality that make you feel good. Y'all got time for me. Right, because right now in your culture, you and I are living on convenience. Like there are so many things that are at our convenience 
that we wouldn't want them taken away. You know what I'm saying? A lot of things that are convenience. A lot of things that are convenience. By the hard work of taking material goods and transforming them metabolically into something that we can use. Now, if those things were taken away, guess what we would find ourselves doing? Struggling emotionally and mentally and psychologically. Would we not? Do you know why? Because we have transferred our allegiance from God to those things. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Is that true? But we don't act like it. We will tear the world up if we don't get to have our way. See what I'm talking about, you guys? Men and women are psychological slaves, and the enemy way above us knows that. And it will give us all of these unique fads and gadgets that give us, watch this now, conveniences. Conveniences. And then it will enter into the psychological tactic of taking a few things away from us to agitate us and and turn us into Pavlov's dogs. We start salivating for those things that we are used to. And this is how you become a slave of it. Now, it's going, let's go on. This is a little bit more for you to catch because the irony here is for you to get. Verse 18, verse 18. They have not known, nor have they understood, for he has shut their what? God has blinded men and women who walk in that idolatry. This is why it's so hard to talk to them. This is why it's so hard to talk to them. He He has shut their eyes. Are you guys hearing me? This is what God says. If you don't want to hear me, then I'm going to shut your eyes. If you don't want to obey me, I'm going to shut your ears. This is what Jesus experienced when he came. Jesus is the revelation of the invisible God. He comes to his own people and they don't receive him. And he told the disciples in Matthew 13, this is what Isaiah said. In hearing, they would not hear. In seeing, they would not see. Because if they heard and saw, then I would convert them and heal them and they would walk with the true and the living God. Am I making some sense? Hear this, watch this, this is important for you to get. He says, they cannot see and their hearts that they cannot what? Right, a lot of people don't understand what's going on. And, and so your struggle in mind is trying to breach the language gap and then help reorient people to understand what's taking place. Am I making some sense? You can't be frustrated about it because this is fundamentally the gospel. Let me make one more point on it and then I'm going to move on. We do say that men and women are by nature spiritually blind. Would you agree with that? All right, so I don't want you to be upset with me when I'm pushing this out on its application level. And I don't even care if you're upset. I'm just saying you shouldn't be. Because when we understand the propositions of the gospel, it itself is offensive to people. People are not just naive. People are not just weak. People are not just sick. People are spiritually dead. And they're spiritually blind. And to share with them that their problem is spiritual blindness and that they're spiritually dead so that not only can they not see, they don't care. When you're spiritually dead, you don't care. That's a problem they can't solve on their own. But it doesn't allow you, lazy Christian, not to do something that God is calling you to do that is fundamentally a miracle. God is calling you to speak into their life. Because the inherent miracle is that the word is able to quicken them. You don't get to say, because they're dead, I'm not going to say anything. Because they're blind, I'm not going to speak. That's why Jesus came. Didn't Jesus speak to the dead? Didn't he speak to the blind? Didn't he speak to the lame? And didn't they rise up and walk? The other thing that has happened is our gospel has been stripped of power. 
So people don't believe in the power of the gospel. They don't believe that God can open the eyes of the blind. So we don't share because we're trapped by that same idolatry. We want to be comfortable. Am I making some sense? Sure I am. Listen to it. That they cannot understand. I want you to catch the closer. Look at verse 19. Notice what it says. And none considers in his heart. This is so true. Their commitment to this world system and all of the deviations and this incremental tearing down of our society and the chaos and the Gotham City manifestation. Aren't we experiencing Gotham City everywhere? Everywhere. Listen, they don't consider in their heart, neither is there knowledge or understanding for them to say. Now, you know what? I burned part of this wood in the fire. I have baked bread upon the coals thereof. I've roasted my turkey and my ham. I've eaten it. And shall I make the residue thereof an abomination? See it? This is God allowing us to hear the soliloquy of the man who is coming to some sense that what he's doing is worshiping the works of his own hands. Do y'all see that? That's the kind of revelation you and I want to occur with people. We want them to go back and reflect. Wait a minute. I'm bowing down to a false god. See it? Now watch this. I'll make the residue thereof an abomination. Shall I then bow down to a tree? See how reasonable that is? Look at verse 20. Verse 20. Notice what he says in verse 20. He feeds on ashes. That's what he's doing. This is why Moses broke up that idol, scattered it on the water, the ashes on the water, and made them to do what? Drink it because he wanted them to viscerally experience their betrayal of the true and the living God. Especially since a couple of weeks earlier, everybody was worshiping around the true and the living God, eating and what? Drinking. Because God gives us feasts, doesn't he? He gives us spiritual feasts. He gives us practical feasts. And we love the Lord's food, do we not? But the food of the world will kill you. Now, a lot of times you've got to eat your own poop to realize that it's your own poop that you're eating. I know it sounds bad, but I can tell you it's worse than it sounds. When you're turning the creation into a god, which is what's happening with artificial intelligence at its highest levels of strategy, to make artificial intelligence have all the qualities of God, so you don't need God, you just go to AI. Are you hearing me? This is where we are today. And the statistics have already been done. I'm I'm deep into the statistics now around the world. China's ready to do it. They can't help it because they have been trained to be slaves. They love their technology. They love their computers. They love their programming. And because they have been stripped of the higher level of human relationships, which is what's happening in America. See, uh, Americans are experiencing the same thing, a separation of relationship at the acute level, and we are becoming much more comfortable with technology as our relationship. Am I making sense? Am I making sense? We're actually scared to be intimate, scared to talk, scared to breathe on each other, scared to wrestle it through, when in the beginning it was not so. All you had in the beginning was each other. All you had was one another. You had to hang out with one another. You had to eat together. You had to spit on each other. And God gave you a marvelous immune system, adaptive and innate to deal with all of that. It builds you up. They drank from the same cup. They ate from the same table. These are our cultures all around the world. 
There wasn't individual plates. You reached your hand in and got some. And God blessed it. And here we are now needing to isolate into little bubbles because we're scared to death of the other. That's incrementally developed because of the idolatry we have. Listen to what he says. He feeds on ashes. A deceived heart has turned him aside. Do you see? His heart has been turned aside. That's what God told Moses. Israel has turned aside. Notice what it goes on to say. That he cannot do what? He cannot do what? He cannot, please go back, please. He cannot deliver his soul. Nor say, is there a what? See, so when you tell them that they're buying into a lie, they can't believe it. No, I'm not buying a lie. You're buying a lie, but I'm not buying a lie. Am I making some sense? They don't want to embrace the fact that they bought a lot. But God gives grace to the humble. He will resist the proud. See, one of the ways you can get out of the matrix is say, help, Lord, I bought a lie. That's how you get out. You will never get out that matrix if you think that you're not in it. And all of us have been in that matrix. All of us have been deceived by that matrix. And the only way you're going to get out is if you continue in my word. Sanctify them in thy truth. Thy word is truth. If you are my disciple, you will continue in my word and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. You cannot come out of this matrix without God's truth. Breaking open the framing that you have bought into and showing you what's behind it. Like I'm doing right now with you. You will never come out of it. Because what you have to do to come out of a framing An ideology, and this is like being in a cult, and it is a cult because it is a religion. It's not a science. Everything about it is anti-science. It is alchemy. It is historic witchcraft being employed at the technological level, and these are demon-worshipping institutions. And they are overt with it in the music industry. And that's because so many people are much more emotionally driven than they are intellectually driven. Am I making some sense? But it's working in our politics, it's working in our law enforcement, it's coming up through the education system. As I showed you guys on Friday, the perversion of that little boy called Desmond, did you see it? They're celebrating the transformation of these kids. See, that little kid is an idol now. He's a false god, constructed in their own image. He's a lie, because he is not a girl. You can't, a girl can never be a boy. A boy can never be a girl. A man can never be a woman. A woman can never be a man. It cannot happen. So you have the choice of embracing the appearance of a facsimile and calling it reality. But what we know is occurring when you do that, you are unreeling yourself. This is a psychological term that means you abandon reality for a falsehood and you live in the myth rather than in the reality. And a lot of times they threaten you to go there. He cannot deliver his soul because there is a lie in his right hand. See it? Point number two, let's keep working. Point number two. So we already got the people cry, Aaron lie, and then the people what? That's verse 25 of your text. Look at it again. And when Moses saw that the people were naked, for Aaron had made them naked unto their shame, before their enemies. Then Moses stood at the gate of the camp and said, who's on the Lord's side? See, it's on now, isn't it? See, this is where Moses is going to have to struggle 
Because what's about to happen is that Moses is about to find out that God's a just God. And here's what he's got to struggle with. And he said unto, the, uh, unto them, thus saith the Lord God of Israel, put every man his sword by his side and go in and out of the gate and go through the camp and slay every man his brother and every man his companion and every man his neighbor. And the children of Israel did according to the word of Moses and there fell of the people that day. How many people? So just in case you are, uh, you're not sound in your capacity to grip scripture, this was not a uh, kill fest. This was not some kind of havoc, some kind of uh, mayhem or chaos. This was strategic. Do you understand what I just stated? This wasn't some kind of kangaroo court, some kind of gorilla just launching from behind a tree and killing somebody irrationally. This is finding everyone who openly rebelled against God and they were persistent in their rebellion. That's called justice. See, in this stuff that you're seeing today called justice, it's not justice at all. It's indiscriminate. Innocent people get hurt in this. Are y'all hearing what I'm saying? Can I teach? What you're seeing today is people be harmed because no longer are people being viewed at the individual level. People are part of systems now. That is Marxism to eradicate personal autonomy. So now that you're part of a system, then the enemy feels like it can come in and kill everything that's part of the system. This is why God told you in Exodus chapter 21, you shall not follow a multitude to do evil. It is unjust to kill someone who was not directly engaged in the crime that might have justified a killing. That is even worse criminal than the person even being somewhat complicit or or, or passive. We have court systems that know how to deal with that. And then they still need a court hearing to prove whether they were there. And then we need to examine whether or not there was intent and malice accomplishing that particular crime. Am I making sense? This is why Jesus is the ultimate judge and he's coming and his reward is with him and he'll give every single man according as his work shall be. But what you got going on in this Marxist madness is killing whole groups of people. And when you do that, guess what? You're actually killing your own. I'm going to try to help you with just one. There's no possible way, no possible way that reparations can be just and earnest in our present situation. First and foremost is because the present group of people didn't do the harm. We would still argue that every soul that sinneth, it shall die. Other folks are not going to die for you unless it's Jesus dying as your substitute. But apart from that, justice is going to seek out every single individual. Am I making some sense? You don't take folks who did something 400 years ago and then punish their uh, descendants who are four generations in front of you. You don't do that. Here's the other thing. I'm going to help you with this. All right, just bring it on down. Here's the other problem. This idea of reparations and and wanting to pay things back. We get that. That is a redemptive paradigm. The Bible says if a thief steals, let him pay it back. And then your stupid reprobate government will facilitate ignorant people in reparations. And we're going to give you millions and millions and millions back. We, the government, we the government. We, the government, like the government generates money, like the government makes income, like the government has the ability to uh, generate resources. Guess where you're going to get the money from? Us. Us. 
me. My own people are going to plunder me in order to get money. They are thinking it's coming from somebody else. Am I making some sense? But when you're deluded, when you're deluded, you don't know how to reason through. That's what that text said. They don't have understanding. They're emotionally driven. They're not operating out of rational logic. Am I making some sense? All right, let's go on because there are other things I want to lay out here in our text. So we see it under point one. People cried, Aaron lied, people died. And then Moses tried. Look over at verse 33. This is what Moses is. And Moses is talking to the Lord and, uh, and over at verse 31. And Moses returned unto the Lord and said, oh, this people have sinned a great sin. And have made them gods of gold like God didn't know. Yet now, if you will forgive their sin, and if not, blot me, I pray thee, out of your book, which you have written. Nice try, Moses. No. So he tried, didn't he try? Lord, kill me. Nah, see, this is what I'm trying to get at for you, saints. One sinner can't atone for another sinner. One sinner can't atone for another sinner. It requires a righteous person to atone for an unrighteous person. And that righteous person has to be able to atone for all your sins, past, present, and future. Now that takes more than a mere human being that requires a God-man who can undergo the eternity of your rebellion against God. He needs to be able to bear your sins from beginning to end, from eternity past to eternity future, because in the eyes of God, that's what we are by nature, transgressors. We need someone who can take all our sin and be laid on him and bear them away in his own body on the tree. Am I making some sense? And as far as I've looked, it's not you and it's not me. You and I need a savior that can bear our sins and liberate us from our rebellion and grant us a time to be able to recover from our stupidity. This is what I love about the gospel. It's a sinner's gospel. If anybody will recognize that they have participated in the great rebellion of Satan and will see their sins and will confess their sins, God is just and able to forgive them and to cleanse them from all unrighteousness. And what a miracle it is. One man can die one time for the sins of all who trust on him. And God will lay on us his righteousness. How glorious. Moses tried, but Moses wasn't Jesus. Request was denied. And that's what the text says here over in verse 30, uh, 33. And the Lord said unto Moses, whosoever has sinned against me, him will I do what? That's called justice. Did y'all get that? Now Moses struggled with that. This is why I want to move you over into point number uh, two for time's sake. Moses struggled with that. Moses struggled with, now he's trying to intercede. Let me, let me help you guys with this a little bit. We're going to bring it down before we go back up. Now I want you to understand, Moses is trying to figure out what it means to be an intercessor. He's trying to figure out what it means to intervene. He's trying to figure out what it means to be uh, an advocate. That's what some of us are called to be. Many of your different fields of life are advocacy fields. You guys know that, right? But you have to know sometimes you come across um, ambivalent situations where you don't quite know how to negotiate what you're doing for someone. And it becomes a struggle because sometimes in your intervention, you are actually justifying the wicked. See, that's what COVID was, just in case y'all don't get it. 
COVID was a scam employed to be put upon humanity and good interventionists were simply doing what they were told, but they violated the rules because they didn't understand the product that they were told to give to people. That's a rule. You got to know the product. And the enemy was able to lie to everybody and say, we can't tell you what the product is. What in the heck is a system by which you're telling me to put something in my body and you don't even know what the product is? I might as well go to the dope fiend on the dope dealer on the corner, right? That same outcome. Is that right? I'm just showing you how the landscape can get uh, what they call perversed, where you who are called to be interventionists end up serving wicked causes and in, uh, inadvertently do it and not really know it. I'm making sense. And Moses is struggling with how to stand for God and stand for the people too. This is why chapter 34 is a real, a real insight. This is where Moses, okay, God, can we have a conversation? Since you're going to kill people whenever you want to, and you still want me to lead them, I'm not, right, I'm not sure how these numbers add up. Because if what you did today is something that happens every week, I don't even think we're going to make it out the first year. Because, I, I, you know, as much as I'm upset with Aaron, I actually agree with him. These people are set on mischief. So Moses has to have a conversation with God. Like sometimes, I'm going to make application while I got you. I'm so glad I have you. As a mother, you're an advocate. As a father, you're an advocate. Sometimes your children are so complicated. Right? And you know they're not doing right. But you don't know how to solve it. Sometimes you're trying to talk to them but you don't have the right words to actually grant them the epiphany. But you do have a sword because you know when they get out of line, you're going to pull that sword out. But you don't want to pull the sword out because you love them and you just know they're blind. So you go to God, God, what can I say to them to help them come to understand they're in a bad way? Does anybody know what I'm talking about? And sometimes God is going to say, you're going to have to exercise tough love. They got to go. But that's counterintuitive to my nature, Lord. I kind of want to just give them whatever they want. And then God says, well, then look at the 21st century in America. And this is what you get with kids when you just give them what, you, what they want. You see this transgender culture? This here is what we call unconditional love. Don't laugh. That's, what, that's exactly what the trans community called it. If you love us, just let us do whatever we want to. That's why I don't buy into that adjective. Ain't nothing unconditional. Everything has trade-offs. Everything has boundaries and parameters, especially the sacrificial love of God in Christ. Did y'all hear what I said? Right. If you just let your children do whatever you, they want to do, you are not loving them. According to the Bible, here's what the proverb says, a child left to himself will bring everybody to shame. And that is the culture we are growing up in, where children are left to themselves. And the government has now hijacked them and has inserted into their mind through all kinds of mechanisms that they can feel one way and actually define themselves according to their feelings and deny reality. And parents are fit to be tied because they don't know how to love their children in the truth. Am I making some sense? And so our world is going through the neo-gnostic alchemy process of change. But as I stated to you before, and I want to move into that point in close, 
The world is changing in one direction and God's elect are changing in another direction. As the world is changing and morphing into the Antichrist beast system of the devolutionary manifestation and phenotype of what used to be the Imago Dei. See, we actually believe that all humans are created originally in the Imago Dei. Would you agree? But when you leave them to themselves, they are going to devolve into devils. Either you're going to be a child of God or a child of the devil. And I can tell you what the devil looks like. He looks like everything that is a parody and contrary to God. All right, so now watch what goes on. Moses, Moses under point number two, a, a conversation about clarity. A conversation about clarity. I, I, I love this. This is actually going to be uh, chapter Chapter uh, 33, verse 11. And the Lord, I'm sorry, ver, uh, yeah, I should start at verse 7. And Moses took the tabernacle and pitched it without the camp. Now, do you see what Moses just did? He took the tabernacle and pitched it outside of the camp and called the tabernacle uh, and, and called it the tabernacle of the congregation. And it came to pass that everyone which sought the Lord went out from their camps unto the tabernacle of the congregation, which was without the camp. Do you understand what happened? The tabernacle was in the camp and it was surrounded by the tribes. And God says, take my house out, way out yonder and plant it out there. And Israel watched Moses do that. And Israel understood that God had separated himself from them. Did y'all get that? Because God was in the midst. But because they did not have reverence for God in the mist. God says, I got to go way out here. Because if you go back to like verse five or six, you know what God says? Moses, I'm going to kill up every one of these people if I stay in the mist of them. Did you hear what I just stated? So Israel understands the implications. God has removed himself far from them. But that was because they first moved themselves far from God. Draw near to God. He will draw near to you. Remove yourself from God and he will remove himself from you. The space between you and God is based upon either your humility or your pride. He knows the wicked afar off. And so now they're struggling. And so Moses is now running and talking to God. You see what I meant by Moses struggling? You guys understand that? Because Moses is dealing with a consuming fire. And these people are behaving like bramble bushes. Now, you know, those two don't go together real well. And notice what it says over here in verse uh, verse 10. I want to move forward. And all the people saw the cloudy pillar stand at the tabernacle door and all the people rose up and they worshiped every man in his tent. And the Lord spoke to Moses, what? Face to face as a man speaks unto his friend and he turned again into the camp. I want you to mark this. And his servant Joshua, the son of Nun, the young man, departed not out of the tabernacle. So remember, Joshua is a key because Joshua is a transition point. I'm just going to let you know. Joshua is the brother always doing what God wants him to do, but he's always remaining subordinate to Moses. He's always near. And God's going to put Moses in a place, in a, uh, uh, Joshua in a place right here while Moses goes with God. So I want you to leave Joshua over here for a moment. I'm going to show you something. Watch this. This is what goes on. I'm over in verse 11. And the Lord spoke to Moses in verse 12. And Moses said unto the Lord, see, you have said to me, bring this people up uh, and that you uh, that he bring this people up. And thou has not let me know whom you will send with me yet. 
you have said, I know you by name and you have also found grace in my sight. Is not Moses pleasing, pleading with God? Now, therefore, I pray thee, if I have found grace in your sight, show me now your way that I might know you, that I might find grace in your sight and consider that this nation is your people. What a great plea. First of all, all Moses is saying, Lord, I haven't figured you out. A way is a lifestyle. It's a character. It's a pattern. Jesus said, I am the way. And Moses is saying, show me your pattern, Lord, because I'm not clear on what's getting ready to happen next month. That makes all the sense in the world, right? Moses is supposed to be God's man. He can run up and talk to God. And Moses is just as clueless as anybody else. I hear him. Please listen to how God responds. And God said to Moses, my presence shall go with you and I will give you rest. Do you see it? I want you to get that. A lot of you guys have emotionalized that verse, but I'm going to show you something. You've emotionalized that verse, but I'm going to show you. It is a promise. What he's telling Moses is, Moses, whatever I do, understand this. My my presence will go with you. I love that, okay? I love that. So I want you to get what's going on. It says over in verse 16, for wherein shall it be known, this is Moses, that I and your people, because now Moses know God said, you my dude, but Moses want God to affirm that the people are his. I get you, Moses. He said, uh, and your people have found grace in your sight. Is it not that you will go with us? Is it not that you will go with us? See, formation is broken, isn't it? Because the, the tabernacle is outside of the military stratagem. Moses is saying, God, you got to go with us. If you don't go with us, we don't, I, I, I'm not moving. I thank God for Moses. This is called mediation. Listen to it. He says, so shall we be separated. I and your people from all the people that are upon the face of the earth. In your own time, meditate upon verse 16. The sin of American Christianity is, is not separated enough. The sin of American Christianity is is way too wrapped up in the world. Way too. See, there's a time to be in the world, but there's a time to be out. There's a time to engage the world and there's a time to separate from the world. See, there's a lot of professing Christians that don't spend any substantial time with God. And you can tell by what their passions are. See, when you really love somebody, you love hanging out with them. With the rest of the people, you know, you carve out time for them. But that's not your love. And this is what we call worldly Christians. People who love this world. So they pinch off a few minutes for God. And the rest of the time, they're engaging in the idolatrous lust of what was depicted by Israel worshiping the golden calf and becoming naked before their enemies. This is why the church doesn't have a covering today. It's naked spiritually. It doesn't have a covering. Now, when you have a covering, that means you're in relationship with God because God is our covering. When you have a covering, it means you have a shield and a buckler and a panoply to deal with the warfare. And Jesus is our armor. But when you're not walking right with God, you're naked. And when you're naked, you're more like the serpent than you are God because the serpent is the naked one. I taught y'all that. And God does not want you to be naked. That's why he clothed them with coats of skin. And that's why he has given us the righteousness of Christ. But that righteousness ought to be something that you and I are acquainting ourselves with more and more so that we go, oh, how I love Jesus. 
more, more about Jesus and more time with Jesus. And here's going to be the reason why. Give me five more minutes. Because when people actually know you spent time with Jesus, there's an anointing that results from it. There's an anointing. Here's what God said to Moses. Verse 17, and the Lord said, Moses, I will do this thing that you have spoken for me. For you found grace in my sight, and I know you by name. And Moses just bursts out, I beseech you, show me your glory. See, that boy wants it bad. Y'all to want it. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you. I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. I'll show mercy on whom I will show mercy. You see it? And he said, you cannot see my face, for there shall no man see my face and live. And this is why I told you that when Moses was in that shroud, in that secret place with God, there was a veil between Moses and God where Moses never saw God's face personally. He talked to God in a conversation that was like face to face, but Moses never saw what we call the absolute attributes of God. Did y'all get that? Because as God said, he wouldn't be able to endure it. So it's important to know that to talk to God plainly where God talks to you and you talk to God without a mediator is a huge blessing. Now, any one of y'all in the house coming to me saying, I talk to God like that. I'm just letting you know now you are a liar and the truth is not in you. No man has seen God at any time. Only he who is in the bosom of the father, he has revealed him. You can't get to Jesus apart from the Holy Ghost. You can't get to the Holy Ghost apart from the word of God. And you can't get the word of God until somebody teaches you a write the word of the living God. I hear it all the time from all of my charismatic and Pentecostal friends. I talk to God for myself. And I go, that's why you sound so crazy. How can I know except some man teach me? And beginning at the same scripture, Philip expounded to the Ethiopian all things concerning Christ. The Ethiopian is struggling with Isaiah 53. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And, from, and before his shearers, he opened not his mouth. And Philip says, do you understand what you're reading? He says, how can I unless someone teach me? That's called humility. All of these ad hoc folk that want to be prophets and prophetesses, please leave them alone. To the law and to the testimony, if they don't speak according to this book, it's because there's no light in them. And the light that's in them is not the light of Christ. I'm just helping you because what's getting ready to happen, I'm going to pick this up next week. I want to show you two things. But what's getting ready to happen in the world that I live in is things are getting ready to go from bad to worse. And that's because these things have occurred before. All resets, all revolutions have this kind of dissemination, this kind of unraveling, this kind of massive deconstruction and chaos. And when it's that way, all kind of groups of people rise up with charismaniac visions and revelations, okay? We've been through this before. And so you're getting ready to see all kinds of stuff. Only it's going to be exponentially much more complex because they will be utilizing artificial intelligence and technology, which is already capable of deceiving the masses of the people. 
Are you hearing me? The capacity of AI to mimic human beings is almost undetectable now. And when you are old and senile, and a lot of us are old and senile now, and they don't have the capacity for discerning, they don't know how to tell when they are listening to a bot and a human being, they are being hoodwinked. I'm telling you from personal experience, it's, it's a plague happening on our society right now. They're being hoodwinked. They can't tell the difference between the real and the true. And we are in trouble because we have not valued the real. We have not valued relationships. And to the degree that we are living far more comfortably through in the metaverse, we are susceptible to the deception and it will be at our own volitional choice. Am I making some sense? Right. You and I need grace from God. And as I stated, the world is changing in one way. And like the people of Israel, they're trapped. And here Moses is talking with God. This whole time, only person talking with God is Moses, right? right. Only person talking with God. Is, seemed like all those people should have just crammed Moses and moved him out the way and went into the tabernacle. They should have been desperate to come to the tabernacle and just surround the tabernacle. Because the cloud was there. The fire was there. They should have been hungry for God's approval. Now they're waiting on Moses, as they rightly should. They're waiting on Moses. I'm going to come back here next week and show you the glory of Christ. We have to partake of the Lord's table. We have to partake. Look at chapter 34. This is the promise that God made. He told Moses, I'm going to put you in a cleft of the rock. You guys remember that. I'll take away my hand and show you my glory. And notice what it says over in verse 4. I'm sorry, verse 5. And the Lord descended in the cloud, chapter 34, 5. And the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with who there? Moses. And proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed by before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, merciful, gracious, long-suffering, abundant, and goodness and true, keeping mercy for thousands and forgiving iniquity and transgression. Do we, you know what we call that? The attributes of God's mercy. But they don't stop there. Here's justice. And, uh, and notice what it says, and visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children unto the third and fourth generation and in the Decalogue of them that hate me. That's called justice, isn't it? These are the two attributes of the true and the living God that we all have to live with. Like God is immutable, unchangeable. Would you agree with that? So he does show mercy, but he shows mercy on the conditions of who we are in Christ. It's never unconditional mercy. He always also executes justice. So here is how it goes, ladies and gentlemen. Mercy is to all who will repent and believe on the Lord Jesus and trust Christ as their mercy seat. All who rebel against God will face God in his justice. He will spy them out and destroy them rightly because they're living in their rebellion. Am I making some sense? Now, Moses saw the coming down of the Lord. You guys saw that? This is for those of you who are new. Who is it that came down? Jesus. He's the one always coming down. He's the visible Yahweh. The Father's always in heaven. The second person, the visible Yahweh, he comes down like he did in the flesh. And notice what the text says. He stood by Moses. That's point number two. He came down and he stood by Moses. Y'all got that? That means he's got Moses' back. Moses, you're my boy. I'm with you. Isn't that what he kept saying to him? I'm with you. And here Jesus is right up against Moses, is he not? Is this not the Mount of Transfiguration? 
when Jesus spake with Moses and Elijah in the mount. So as Jesus, the pre-incarnate son of God, is with Moses here, Moses in his glory hangs out with Jesus when Jesus takes on a human nature. Y'all get the parallels? It's the law and the prophets and Christ, the chief cornerstone. Now, this is important because God comes to us only in the person of Christ. He stands with us only because Christ is our mediator, our substitute, our intercessor. And Christ stands with us to reveal to us the Father. Because notice what Christ is about to do. He's about to proclaim the name of the Lord, is he not? What a great worship service. Just Moses and the preacher, Jesus. And notice what it says. He descended there and proclaimed the name of Yahweh. So he's what? He's preaching. That's our term, to preach. Verse 6. Verse 6. Notice what it says. And the Lord did what? He, it, didn't he just tell Moses he was going to do that? This is Jesus passing by Moses, declaring the Father's glory. And Moses is enjoying an illustration of the revelation of the invisible God in the person of Christ. Please listen carefully to me, ladies and gentlemen. God reveals his glory, but it's a redemptive glory that he reveals to us because we could never handle his absolute glory. That redemptive glory is told to us in John 1.18. No man has seen God at any time. Only he who dwells in the bosom of the Father, he has revealed him. Is Jesus revealing to Moses the glory of the Father? Yes, he is. And Moses is enjoying this worship service, is he? And see, if you and I are in a proper place right now, God is revealing his glory to you as well. If we're in a proper place. And for those of us who have heard this over and over again, we should say, Lord, thank you for revealing your glory to me once again. I'm not done. I'm not done. Notice what he says after he reveals both his mercy and his justice. And that's how God acts in the world. God's merciful, but he's also just. When he wants to sink a nation, tear a nation up, send it into war because it's rebelled against him over and over and over again. That's what he's going to do. And you and I can't do nothing about it. And it'd be good to just simply say, and it seemed good for you, O Lord, to do whatever is right in your sight. Okay? Notice what he says, the Lord God, verse 7, please, verse 7. Notice what it says. I want to get us to uh, actually verse 8 because we've come through that portion. Verse 8, and Moses made haste and bowed his head toward the earth and did what? He got it. Moses got it. Here's what Moses got. I'm going to show you one more thing and we're, we're going to take the table and get out of here. God just told Moses, you don't have to worry about me annihilating these people. Some of these people are going to have mercy, and this mercy is going to lead them into the promised land. Some of them are going to see my justice, and that justice is because I'm God. You don't have to ever worry about the fact that I told you when you come out of Egypt, you're going into the promised land. But Moses is going to have to deal with this for 39 years. Because for 39 years, everybody 40 and up that thought they knew their own way is going to perish. That's what the Hebrew writer said. So then who was it that God was not well pleased with? Was it not those who did not believe God? So then we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. The ones that entered in were babies who trusted God 
and God brought them in through Joshua. Right now, Joshua is hiding in a cleft of the rock too. Moses is in a cleft. Who is that cleft? Jesus. Joshua is in a cleft because that's what God does with godly leadership. He protects them so they can get a vision of what God is up to in an accurate way to let the people know. Are you keeping up with me? And when all of this is done, which is a magnificent, magnificent conclusio that I want you to see, when all of this is done, something remarkable occurs in chapter 34, verse 20. Look at what it says over in chapter 34. I'm going to start at verse 34, chapter 34, 34, and then I'm ending with 35. I want to pick this up next week and, and start another message. Are you there? But when Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, that's the context you're dealing with in chapter 33, okay? To speak with him, he took, ah, I need to go back because he's got a veil on his face. Over at verse 29, uh, verse 30, and it came to pass when Moses came down from the mount with the two tables of the testimony in Moses' hand, when he came down from the mount, that Moses did not know that the skin of his face, what? While he talked with God. Do you see that? Now watch this. And when Aaron and all the children of Israel saw Moses, behold, the skin of his face shone. Here we go again. They were afraid to come near to him. How painful is that insight? How painful is that insight? I'm done here. How painful is this? This is the contrast between people who view God as something dangerous. See, Moses is drawing near to God. And when you draw near to God, God's glory is going to impact you. Please understand that. This is not mystical. This is not hard. You spend time with someone, you're going to know them. You spend deep, intimate, what we call interconnected dialogue with somebody, you're going to take on their characteristics. Moses is in the presence of the Shekinah glory, and it shows up in his face. He is so unconscious of it because it's not about Moses as it should not be about you or about me. But how can a mediating person, a believer who fellowships with God, come down from the mount fellowshiping with God and go hang out with people who are supposed to know God? And when they see the glory of God on you, they run from you like they ran from God. Do you see it? Do you see it? You have to. Because every one of God's people have access to God the same way Moses did through Jesus. Am I making some sense? We should all want to be impacted by that glory. And I'm going to make that plain next week to you. Because that glory is ours in Christ. In the same way that the rulers said concerning Peter and James, we could tell that they had been with Jesus. And when people repel from you because you spend time with Christ and they profess to be believers in Christ, it's because they're not spending time with Christ. This is clear. 
And this is going to be the enmity and the perpetual struggle that Moses has. So much so, he has to put a veil over his face. This is what Paul said. And to this day, the veil is not removed from the hearts of the Jewish people. Y'all keeping up with me? So they can't see the glory of Christ in Moses. See, God has to remove the veil. And we have to love his glory. And be compelled to want to draw near to him. And how can you repel a believer who spends time with God and say that you love the same God that they love? And Moses is going to struggle with this until he dies. He's going to realize that the people of God that he has to lead to glory have divided hearts. This is often the struggle of the people of God among us too. Just do this by application. We got all kind of loved ones that we would want to love God even more than we love God. And we would want them to enter into the joy of his glory. I'm going to unpack this next week. You'll see what I'm saying. This is non-negotiable. Everyone should have the anointing. Would you agree? Because without it, you can't do a thing. And we can't enjoy deep fellowship where there is not that anointing. What we're about to do now argues for my point, doesn't it? We're about to have the Lord's table, aren't we? This here is the price for the anointing, isn't it? Is this the price? Jesus laid down his life. And the Holy Ghost was poured out, wasn't he? I'm going to unpack it next week. Say, I know, we, we think we know these things. We don't know them, do we? Not as we ought to know. So it breaks my heart that, that Moses is doing everything he can to understand God. And he has to come back to a people that don't want to understand God. And that's the generation you and I live in. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We'll have the offering after this. We'll have the offering. I think I want to start here this time. Can I do that? I love God because you know what? He's merciful. And we saw that in the text, that he's merciful first and then he's just. Now he's giving us something that constitutes our unity, doesn't it? Isn't it? Our unity is grounded in, not in us, but in Jesus. Would you agree? And a small little feeble emblem like bread in the cup means that the infinite, invaluable sacrifice of Christ is accessible to the poorest of people. Isn't that right? All around the world, the saints are doing this. Now, you can hear stupid Christians around the world arguing what should be in the elements. And they do, because this is the party spirit that loves to argue every little pet doctrine. But our unity is in the person of Jesus. Would you agree? And we barely know him, but he knows us perfectly. And our salvation is secure, not because we know him, but because he knows us. 
And a un unity in Christ is taken out of our hands so that we don't turn this into a litmus test as to whether or not you and I agree. I'm not your master. Jesus is. And that's why Jesus didn't tell the disciples, y'all kick Judas out. Because he was at the table too. Wasn't he? Sure he was. Read your Bible carefully. God knew when to get rid of Judas. And he didn't actually ask for the advice of the other 11 when he did it. That's because you and I need to be careful about judging other folks outside of what is written. And what is written is examine yourself. This is the reason why the enemy has gotten into the church and divided into 33,000 sects. 33,000 sects in the Christian church. And this is why we're so impotent in the West to stop the evil that's going on. Because we've been arguing over little petty things that don't even matter. And while we've been arguing over these petty things, the enemy has come in and stolen the souls of our children for several generations now. And we think we're bad. And we're losing the battle in, in the church. It's happening in Europe, too. It's happening in Europe, too. Heard a presentation this morning, uh, a, a newspaper clip from a, from a uh, European newspaper talking about one of the Catholic churches over there in, in London, Ely uh, Catholic Church, Ely Cathedral, opened the doors on, for Friday night so the young people can come in there and, and do disco. Yeah, uh, stop <sighs> like y'all don't dance. You know you dance and stop it, stop it. <sighs> people, people be tripping. Do they trip? Y'all be tripping. Now, now, the, now the, the priest said, look, we got to pay this mortgage, man. We, he literally said that. We got to pay this mortgage. So, you know, the church is getting emptier and emptier and emptier, and that is true because they're not preaching the gospel and they're not mapping the gospel onto reality. So when you go into a church that's not mapping the gospel onto reality, you don't know what the world is doing. This is called prophetic teaching. People are hungry to try to figure out what's going on in the world. And then they said, but see, at least it's not loud disco music. They get to wear these headphones the metaverse, they got this thing where the music is in the ear. So like you got your partner, y'all dancing and getting down and don't nobody hear but you two. <laughs> they call it a silent disco. I said to myself, go ahead on, Bishop. I said, go, I said, go, I said, go ahead on. You ain't preaching the gospel no way. Just let them use the church, make some money. But y'all not preaching the gospel no. Go ahead on with your bad self. You see how desperate the church is? And yet outside of their doors, Britain is burning down because people are in the streets. The Marxists are in the street. The neo-fascists are in the street. And they are, um, they are tearing down uh, Britain like they tore down Rome. And they're tearing down America. And, and, and American Christians are oblivious to it because we're like frogs in the boiling pot. Even if we know what's going on, we can't jump out because we love our sin. Now, God's going to have to purge us. And then some of us will realize we need to spend more time with God than we do at the honky-tonk joint, in the disco joint, even if it's metaverse disco. Because what you consume yourself with, you become. It's very simple. 
Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 24, verse 21, For I have received of the Lord that which also I deliver unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he brake it. He, he said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. It's the symbol of our unity. Take the bread and eat. At least I can. We'll have the offering. I'll send you home. I love this opportunity every time. Because apart from the proposition of the gospel that Christ died for our sins, he was buried and rose again the third day. This is as unified as we get. Because after this, we open our mouths and we lose our unity. Does that make some sense? See how smart God is? How smart he is? We'll have the offering at this time.